The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Born in Iowa, my guest today graduated with a degree in electrical and computer engineering from the Franklin W. Olin College of Engineering. She went on to work for some of the most famous tech giants in the world, including Google, Yelp, Pinterest, and finally, Facebook. Whilst there, she became shocked that the company seemed to, in her own words, harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. Leaving the company in 2021, she became one of the most famous whistleblowers in the world, leading to the Wall Street Journal's expose, The Facebook Files. She has since testified both in the US and UK about the harm she believes Facebook does to society and continues to be a vocal advocate in holding big tech to account, all while the UK government's online safety bill progresses through Parliament. My guest today is Frances Haugen. Frances, to begin this podcast, we always ask... Would you describe yours as a happy childhood? So I grew up in Iowa City, Iowa, which is one of these places that's like a, a, a town out of place. So my parents are from the coasts. Uh, my mother grew up in New York, uh, outside of New York City. My father's from Berkeley, California. And they met in the middle in Iowa because that's where the University of Iowa is. And Iowa City is an amazing place to be you know, the child of two academics because you have amazing freedom. Like my parents literally gave me a bus pass and let me wander around in the summer when I was seven. And you can do that safely because there's 100,000 people in the town when school's in session. There's like maybe 25 or 30,000 people in town when the school's not in session. And so they have amazing schools. There's a remarkable number of early Facebook employees that were my classmates in my high school in Iowa. And I'm very grateful for the experience I, experiences I got to have there. Now, your mother is a priest, so is religion mm-hmm. a, a big part of your upbringing? You know, it's interesting. So um, my mother became a priest when I was in college. So she was a a life scientist. She was a cell biologist, professor for 20 or 25 years. And in her 50s, she became a priest. And so religion was not like a huge part of my childhood. Um, It was a thing that my mother really got into when I was in high school and then later on in college. And at that point, were you already thinking about your career? Were you already interested in tech? No, I I don't think I ever intended to have a, a career in tech. One of the downsides of living in an academic town is that the you don't have a lot of paths to like what does it look like to be an adult because a disproportionate share of the adults that you interact with are either like teachers in public schools which are which, which is a great and very valuable career path or they're professors and often they have like Ivy League degrees so there's this like very weird dichotomy of like you know are you are you going to like go to a good school and you can have a job that supports yourself or are you going to be a service worker right? It's, it's not a, a, diverse, a diversified economy. And so my friends and I, we all had this very, very strong desire to do well enough in school that we could, we could, we could get into good schools. And, you know, I, I know there's lots of happy paths to staying in Iowa, but it was one of those things where I was exposed to a very sh- shallow set of experiences. And so that's part of why I was so academically ambitious. 
Um, now, you go and study electrical and computer engineering. And, and I just wanted, I guess, for listeners, I mean, I grew up with Facebook. I think there was Bebo for a while. Mm-hmm. Bebo was <laughs> um, so, so when you went to go and study this, what did the... It feels now as though it's quite obvious that there's, you know, big tech and it's a huge, huge industry. What did it look like back then? Oh, interesting. So when I was in college, uh, most people aren't aware. So Facebook was founded in, tw- in 2004. The big social network in 2004 was actually Friendster. So that was like probably the largest one in the world. And the only reason why today we don't know a Friendster is Friendster wasn't good enough at building the actual technical engineering, right? That the, the math behind social networks is very, very expensive for computers. Friendster grew so fast in popularity that the site became unusable. There are these programs called crawlers. And crawlers, they're computer programs that walk across the web, you know, the World Wide Web, and download content. And the first crawler I ever wrote, I wrote actually when I was studying abroad in Sweden in 2004. And it wasn't a Facebook, it was a Friendster, because Friendster was the cool thing then. And then the mid-2000s, like maybe 2006, the big social network was, was MySpace. And so the thing that Facebook really displaced was, was not Friendster, because Friendster kind of killed itself. But it displaced MySpace. And when you start to, when you're doing your degree, mm. how did you find uh, studying? Was it male-dominated in your, in your class, or was it a pretty good mix? So I, I went to a very unique engineering experience, which was um, I went to a brand-new engineering college. And so there were only 75 students in my entire college when I was a freshman. And because there were so few students, right, we all had full tuition scholarships, they could be very picky. And they intentionally had a 50-50 male-female balance because they had lots of strong female candidates and there were like very few slots. And so Olin is, one, is the only engineering school, the only engineering school in the United States that has more women than Olin is Smith, which is a women's school, a women's college. And so uh, it's interesting. I didn't really experience like large amounts of sexism in tech until I got to Google. Um, and so it was actually like a very rude awake, awakening for me to show up at Google. And I think Google at the time was 12 or 13% women on the technical side. And so it's like I've been in this environment where it's always been, you know, 50-50. And Wellesley, which is a women's college, is five minutes away. So I took uh, one-eighth of my classes in college at Wellesley to move into an environment where there are almost no women. And so it was just a very, I don't know unexpected thing and um, that I mentioned instruction you just mentioned of course Google some of the places mm-hmm. you worked before Facebook mm-hmm. so Yelp Pinterest I wanted so on, on graduating what was your kind of way in uh, oh, to your first job great great question so I had a very interesting job search in that I got this weird in-between option so I, I it wasn't that I didn't get into grad school but I also didn't get into grad school so I got deferred to Harvard Business School when I got my, my decision back, it said, we are saving a place for you in two years. We want you to have some, some work experience. And so I called them up and I was like, so just, just so you're aware, like, I don't have a job right now. Like, I'm planning on going to a startup. And the admissions team was like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. Like, we love entrepreneurship. Um, I'm sure it'll be fine. And so, you know, a couple months went by and I was like poking them be like, hey, do you want a business plan? Like, how are you going to like say this is like a legitimate thing I'm doing? And it was like crickets. And mid-July, they wrote back to me and they're like, so we had a conversation and we'd like you to have a more structured work experience. And I don't know about in the UK um, or in Europe, but um, no one hires fresh graduates for interesting opportunities the summer before the fall, right? They, they, they do that hiring a full year out. And so I applied to 55 jobs and I got three, I got three phone screens and I got two in-person interviews, and I got one job offer, which is from Google. And so 
I, yeah, I ended up at Google very randomly. Like I never expected to move to California. Like I had always been raised with a father that had left California. So he had a lot of very critical opinions about California. Was he um, impressed by your plan to go to California? He was, uh, he, he was not super pleased, but it was the only job offer I got. And, and like Google, Google is a great place to start your career, even then. Yeah, what was it like being in such like a iconic, but also, you know, very large organization so early on? Mm-hmm. Did you feel like a little bit like a small cog in a very big machine? Or I really liked Google. Like something that, that may not be obvious is that, that highly performance startups like really highly performance startups. And I think Google did a great job at this early on. Google felt like a very safe place where it was a thing where like people felt very secure about themselves. And so that it was very collaborative. And I loved being surrounded by, you know, just masters at their craft and getting to learn from that. And so I, I loved being at Google. And I want to also talk about you moving to Facebook, but I wonder first maybe just for hmm. our listeners, I mean, my husband is a coder, and I couldn't actually tell you what he does every day. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you could just explain to listeners, when you were doing your job at Google, for example, what is a day in the life in terms of what you're doing? So I did a couple different areas at Google. So I was a product manager. So product managers, so Facebook is a product, Instagram is a product. But even within, say, Instagram, the box where you create a new post that itself is a product. And even like the picker where you say like this person, I'm, I'm with this person, that's a product, an even smaller product. And I started out at Google working on reporting for ads on AdWords. And then very soon after that, starting my second year, so I was there for about seven and a half years, I started working on search quality. So search quality as a product is really different than what most product managers do because most product managers you know, if you ask them, what did you contribute to this product? They can point at the button or at the screen that they were responsible for adding to that product. But when you work on search quality, you, a huge amount of your job is pulling out of the databases, a bunch of things that people search for and seeing what they clicked on or seeing what does Google return for these results or what results do they return for the search query? And just seeing if you see trends, like, oh, interesting, like there's not enough diversity in the results on this page. Or, uh, and by diversity, I mean, are we returning the exact same web page over and over again? Or is there a better result that we're not returning? You know, and going and trying some other strategies for trying to retrieve that information and figure out how could we get that onto the first page? Or it could be things like, how do we present that information? You know, for some queries, maybe, you know, queries like the, the actual things you type into Google's search box. For some queries, the best possible answer might be, a five-line snippet instead of a two-line snippet. That's the text underneath the heading on each result. Or maybe the best result would be a picture. And I worked on Google Books for four years, um, working on search quality and doing some front-end changes. Later on, I did the same thing on on Google+. And at the very end, I worked on the knowledge graph. So that's how do we describe the information that we show on Google. And you obviously worked in various places, but I, I... want to talk about obviously the move to Facebook Mm -hmm. so why did you want to move to Facebook how did it come about was it something you'd always want to work for or not or not so much I never really had a hunger to work at Facebook Uh, so something that most people are not aware of is is if you have more than say five years of work experience in Silicon Valley a Facebook recruiter will contact you every three months like, there's enough brand damage. They have to constantly be really, really working at it. Do you feel got, like, nice lunches out of it? Nothing. Or? Uh, you could. Okay. If you, you wanted to extract some lunches, you, it, okay. you probably could. Um, so they'll write, reach out to you and say, like, oh, have you ever considered 
working at Facebook. And, you know, I think I was feeling maybe a little extra punchy or a little snarky the day the email came in. So this is like January 2019. Because I was like, the only thing I would work on at Facebook is misinformation. And they were like, oh, well, by the way, like we have this brand new role. It's, it's civic misinformation. And so it's 2019. It's like the lead up to the 2020 elections. I'm like, ah, oh, that's what, you know, I, I had lived with, I had, I had someone very close in my life who I, I lost to misinformation. So in 2014, I got really sick and I had to relearn to walk. And I hired this assistant the next year because I realized that I was so, I was still so weak. Like I wasn't, my life wasn't at risk anymore, but like I was still so weak that I wasn't strong enough to like carry boxes to clean out a storage unit, that kind of thing. And he became an incredibly close friend. So he would take me walking five days a week. He would, he liked to lift weights. So he taught me how to like eat protein and like, how do you put on muscle, that kind of thing. And in 2016, after Bernie lost the nomination, right? So Bernie Sanders and Hillary were vying to be the Democratic candidate. After he lost the nomination, he just went deeper and deeper and deeper into these dark places on the internet over the next six months. And by the time the 2020 election rolled around, like he and I were having like thousand word emails back and forth on things like, does George Soros run the world economy? And I remember the day that he said to me, he's like, do you even read your own citations? These are all from the mainstream media. And at that moment, I, I realized like I had just completely lost him, right? Like if we can't even agree on the grounds that we can co- try to come to consensus, like there's, there's no place, like there's no place for communication. And so when the, the recruiter was like, oh, you could work on civic misinformation, it was a super interesting idea to me because, you know, losing him to, you know, the depths of the internet was really, really painful for me. And I never wanted anyone to feel that pain. So yeah, so, so, you're, so you joined yeah. Facebook on the misinformation brief. Mm-hmm. And so in that role, what is your job on a day-to-day basis? So I thought... I thought I was joining Facebook to work on misinformation in the United States, right? So it's 2019, civic misinformation. Clearly, this isn't prep for the 2020 elections. I don't know how this, no one ever explained this to me before I joined, but I actually was working on misinformation anywhere there wasn't third-party fact-checking. And misinformation in the United States is eroding our information environment. It's polarizing society. It's hurting it's hurting a lot of different dimensions, but in places like African countries and Southeast Asia, misinformation is killing people. And what was really, really shocking to me, even in the few, first few weeks I was there, was I thought I was a relatively well-read person, and I had no idea this was going on. And I think this is one of those things that's really important for us globally to talk about, which is these tech companies are huge, and they're homed in Northern California, And the people who are building these products often lack international context. And the fact that Facebook went into some of the most fragile places on earth and bought the right to be the internet. So they went in there and said, hey, if you use Facebook, your data is free. If you use anything else, you're gonna have to pay for it yourself. And enough people in those places converged onto Facebook as the internet. Because, like, think about it. Like, even if a fraction of your popu- of your internet users use Facebook as the internet, there's a convergence thing that happens where even people who pay for their data, things still end up on Facebook because of the network effects. 
And so today there's like a billion or two billion people for whom Facebook equals the internet. And I was like uh, looking up some stuff last night and there are a surprisingly high number of countries in the world where the fraction of people in that country that say, I use the internet is smaller than the fraction of people who say, I use the, I use Facebook. So in, so when you're looking at, you come into your role and you're looking at um, what is what people in these countries would be seeing on Facebook? Yep. Is is this fake news? Is it people kind of putting out lies? Mm. Is it is it the fact that it's not really? Is it based on articles on journalists' website? Or is it something else? So one of the big areas that I'm always, always, always pushing for is around transparency. And one of the reasons why I'm always like, we need to get access to the data, which is the top thing we need to fix in the online safety bill. The reason we need researchers to have access to the data is. Right now, when, when, if you or I were to talk about what is Facebook or what do people see on Facebook, the closest thing we get to be able to have evidence of like what is the gestalt, what is viewed on Facebook, is something called the most viewed content report. And the most viewed content report is so misleading, it is almost like a work of art, right? Because like you hear, most viewed content report, you're like, oh, this must be the most viewed content on Facebook. It only shows you the top 20 posts each quarter only for the United States and only for English, right? That is not, that's a tiny, tiny sliver of all the users in the world. Only about 9% of users speak English. I, I have seen the most viewed content in the tier one at-risk countries. So at Facebook, there's this, this tiering system where they say, what are the places in the world most likely to have social media facilitate violence, right? So we've had two genocides globally so far. They were, they were greatly worsened by social media. Myanmar, where 200,000 people died, and Ethiopia, which is still unfolding. And the, oh, and in those, so tier one at-risk countries are the ones most likely to follow in that path. And every two weeks, the social cohesion team used to do a thing called the virality review. And the social cohesion team is the team responsible for preventing genocides, because ethnic violence happens when social cohesion breaks down. Like, it's very Orwellian. So this team used to do this thing every two weeks where they would bring in specialists who would translate for us the top 10 posts in each country in the tier one. So this is like maybe 10, 10 countries, 12 countries. And every single post in the most viewed content report was horrible. You know, it was allegations that your opponent abuses children. It would be gory scenes of violence that they would claim is happening in the next village over, but it would really be from seven years ago and like six countries away. It, would, it, it really, really highlighted what happens when you have places where Facebook is the internet combined with algorithms that give the most reach, the most distribution to the most extreme ideas combined with languages that Facebook has chosen not to support for safety systems. And when those three things all come together, you get information environments where people can't leave, people can't consent whether or not to use it, and the thing that is getting blasted out of these societies is violence. And in your role, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're misinformation, I think most people think, well, you're in a role where you're helping to combat that. But was that your experience? Almost immediately, the thing I faced was there was a real gap. Because at Facebook, things are not meaningful unless they can be measured. But literally, the thing that we had been told to focus on was misinformation where there is no third-party fact-checking. So, so clearly, we need to work on this because there's not third-party fact-checking in most of the world. 
th- those places of violence didn't have third party fact checking. And third party fact checking, what well, if you were oh, in sure. the UK, America would be. Oh, so it, um, they literally hire journalists, yeah. often from name brand publications, because there'll be programs embedded at those those newspapers. Um, I can't name them all through yeah. my head. And those people will get access to a, a secret tool that only journalists get to see that lets you see the most popular stories on Facebook and the ones that are rising the fastest. And they will write up these little stories and do research to explain why these things are not true. So at Facebook, we were in this weird cache 22, which is we're supposed to work on, on misinformation in some of the most vulnerable places in the world. But nothing at Facebook is misinformation until a third party has said it's misinformation. So how do you measure success if you're not allowed to actually, um, you have no, no, no ruler? And so we worked on that for about three months, and then we were pulled off it to work on targeted misinformation that was being sent to people like police officers in the United States. So we literally, like, basically they gave up on misinformation in places that didn't have third-party fact-checkers, despite the consequences, and put us back on the United States after three months. So once you were moved, when did you decide to blow the whistle? The moment that I realized Facebook needed help, right, that it wasn't going to be able to solve these problems alone, like it needed help to solve these problems together, was about a month, a little less than a month after the U.S. 2020 election. Facebook announced, we're dissolving our civic integrity team. So this is the parent team that I was part of. So I worked on civic misinformation under civic integrity. And... A little less than a month afterwards, they came out and said, you know, your work is so important that we're going to integrate you into all these other places in the company. And at Facebook, that's not how reorgs work, right? Like your team either eats other teams or your team is eaten by other teams. And I don't think I was the only one that felt that way because the team that I got moved on to, every single product manager on the team quit in the same six-week span about six weeks later. Not six weeks, six months later. Um, So I, I wasn't the only one that left about the same time. But the, the reason why I was like, oh my goodness, like this is a problem was Facebook's bar for success was that there wasn't riots for 20, for the U S 2020 election, right? We still were facing genocide problems. We still were facing the algorithms giving the most reach, the most extreme ideas. But Facebook was like, oh, like we, we passed this crisis point. We don't, we don't need these folks anymore. And because they dissolved civic integrity, there was no one around to form the war room to turn the safety systems back on before January 6th. And at 5 p.m. on Eastern time on January 6th, the whole list of safety features. So this is not this is not censorship. This is things like how much should you amplify live video? Right. Like Facebook regularly has a problem with people committing suicide on live video or killing other people on live video like Christchurch in New Zealand was filmed on live video broadcast on live video you know the kinds of safety things that were off at 5 p.m on january 6th were were things like should you amplify video live video 850 times like more than it would have earned otherwise probably not if you can't control it but because they got rid of civic integrity no one was there to actually you know pull you know raise the red flag and say we need to act so when did you is that when you that was an incision yeah took me a while to think through like how to do it because, you know, I was working on counter-espionage by that point. So I was thinking very carefully as a data scientist, like, how would I look for myself if I were, like, trying to find someone who was doing this? And so it took me a long time to figure out a plan that I felt confident. And were you able to seek advice from anyone or not? Because what you're working on is so confidential, you're quite, it's actually quite, like, almost a solo decision. I had had, 
I had had a bunch of time during 2020 to talk to my parents because I lived with my parents during COVID about the things that I was seeing at work and to talk through like, what might I do? And so by the time I decided to act, I had had lots of time to become okay with the idea of acting. So the only people I, I talked to about it in great depth were my parents. I tried to reach out to, um, I reached out to a large tech advocacy group, which will remain nameless to protect the guilty, and, and told them very early on. So back during the Iowa caucuses, I, I tried to talk to them about like what I was seeing. And they, because, because back then, the conversation wasn't about how do we fix the algorithms? How do we look at the product choices that Facebook has made that have caused the most extreme content to get the most reach? Because the only frame of reference at that point was the frame of reference that Facebook gave. You know, they said, the only things we can do to keep people safe are censorship. Uh, that tech advocacy group was not willing to help me at that time. Because they're like, well, even if the public knew about these things, all they would do is censor them. And so I... I I, I did have to do it on my own. So you make the decision, yeah. uh, you do it, and then what happens? Is there a point where, I'm, I imagine if it's during COVID, are you working from home at this time? Mm-hmm. Are you in the, yeah. So it's not like you leave the office for the, fir- for the last time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what starts to happen after you, you know, share the information? Hmm. So things, things stayed very quiet for quite a long time. So it was only right in the lead up to the uh, first article being published with the Wall Street Journal that my lawyers started talking to me about like, you know, do you want to be publicly like, like you should think really hard about coming out publicly. And you stopped working for Facebook at this point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I stopped working for Facebook back in May. Yeah. And, um, and the first article came out in September and my lawyer was just really blunt with me on being like, they're going to hunt for your identity. And guess what? Facebook knows your identity. Like Facebook could out you. They could try to discredit all these, all these disclosures by painting you some really negative light. And so that late in that summer, I had to make a decision on whether or not to come out. And based on the information that I had at the time, I decided it was safer to control the point at which I entered the public dialogue. And at that point, what do you find uh, the public reaction to be? Were you ready for the scrutiny that comes with it? Or, um... I've had a, it's so funny, like I've been incredibly lucky. Like I know how hard it's been for like uh, for Snowden or for Reality Winner or like Chelsea Manning, like I know I know how hard it's been for people who have who have whistleblown on the federal government. There is not that level of uh, allegiance or goodwill towards Facebook, and I think that's why. Like I don't even get sent mean messages on my DMs. Like I always say, like I leave my DMs open. Like if you want to be mean to me, you can. I do respond, but I usually ask you, could you tell me more? But people, I think it's. I, I've had a, a very, a very fortunate emergence into the public light because people have been very supportive. Now, since obviously mm-hmm. you um, blew the whistle on Facebook, they faced lots of scrutiny, mm-hmm. and I think lots of negative publicity. But I think just for the end of this, kind of moving to the present day, I wondered. I mean, first, do you think Facebook have learned any lessons yet? And mm-hmm. then I want to ask you about the online safety bill. So we have seen some changes in Facebook already, even without mandated changes. So the Digital Services Act just passed in Europe, and there are many changes that are going to be coming down the pipeline as a result of that. But even before being forced to do things like transparency, Facebook has uh, launched some things that show that they, they have listened to at least some of the criticisms. So I'll give you an example. At any point in the last 10 years, they could have released parental controls on Instagram. At any point, right? People have been asking for parental controls forever. And, and these are things like saying, 
can you assign a, a time allowance to your kids? Because the reality is the kids that are most harmed by social media are the ones that uh, have a negative relationship with it and then end up doom scrolling at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., right, where their anxiety pulls them to engage more, but at the same time, the content is making them more anxious. Time budgets are important for, for kids' safety. They didn't launch those until like two months ago. Like there weren't really parental controls till then. Or Facebook has made some efforts to um, try to support more languages for its safety systems. Like they announced in December that they were re-architecting how they did those so they could try to cover more languages. Online safety bill currently going through Parliament. I've recently actually had Nadine Doris on this podcast, the Culture Secretary, who's leading the legislation. What do you make of it in terms of, I suppose, uh, fairly briefly for our listeners, because obviously it's a very wide bill, but I just wondered um, what you think is is good that it's doing and then where you think it actually Mm. is potentially lacking. I think one of the places where, you know, the UK is really establishing a reputation around is is it, it is very thoughtful about the rights of children. And like safety by design, and, and uh, making sure that that kids, where kids are safer at least online, because the reality is the internet was not designed for children, and right now the people paying the highest costs, at least in our societies, for uh, social media are are our children. Some of the places where it's a little weaker are things like uh, there's a large focus on content versus on um, um, focusing as much on systems. So the Digital Services Act out of Europe focuses more on you know um, making sure there's transparency from day one. So that means academics, researchers, the regular gain access to data from the start. The online safety bill says, you know, we're going to do a two-year period. Ofcom's going to do a two-year period where they're going to ask the question, should we have access to data? We've known for 10 years we need access to data. Like, we, 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 we would never trust an oil company. Like, if, if, let's imagine some kids were sick downwind from an oil derrick. We would never turn to that oil company and be like, why do you think these kids are sick? And if they were like, have you seen the clouds in the sky? Have you talked to a meteorologist yet? Maybe it's, maybe it's the clouds. No, 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 no. We would send an environmental scientist out there who would test the air. They would test the soil. They would test the water. And they'd come back and be like, no, like the oil derrick is like burning off the stuff and the, there's a byproduct in it. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't ask the person committing the harm to let us know what the solutions are. We would ask our own questions and we would do our own research. And until we have access to data, we cannot act independently. So the online safety bill has to move from saying, should we have access to data? To saying, how will we have access to data? And instead of it taking two years to to start giving access, it should take three months. Because the the Digital Service Act is going to have data on day one, starting in January. Is the data almost looking at how things are targeted? And in that sense, I mean, That would be one thing. Yeah. Right, so it's, it's a huge... So how much a, things it's, are promoted? It's, or, it's, it's yeah. things like what content gets the most promotion, right? Where are the biases? Where are the biases in the censorship systems? Right now, we have no idea how these things work, but Facebook's own documents say things like 75% of counterterrorism content in some languages is getting labeled as terrorism content and taken down. We need transparency to see how these systems work. Another place where I think the bill could be stronger is right now it's allowing the... I think it's like the the secretary, it's it's allowing a minister, an elected minister to say what content should be taken down instead of having an independent, having Ofcom do it. Ofcom Ofcom is an independent regulator. We don't want to have an elected official who might have their thumb on the scale deciding what can and can't be said. We want the independent regulator to have that role. 
Yeah, you mentioned that, and I think one of the criticisms that has been aired in The Spectator, mm-hmm. but also in Parliament, is concerns over legal but harmful, mm. and how that can be interpreted, how it could move, and whether actually it could be a threat to free speech, in the sense that you could say, if, you, if your argument that something could be harmful but it's not actually illegal, mm-hmm. you can start to see how... You know, well, when Nadine Doris was on the podcast, she was saying, as to your point, well, actually, you know, some Twitter pylons would be okay. So a Twitter pylon about her would be okay. But a Twitter pylon if it was racism would not be okay. But I think lots of people think, well, in terms of the legal harmful side, you're going to bring more in. I wonder, what do you think about that? When we look at, you know, we said before about the greatest harms to, like, say, kids, a lot of the stuff that is harming kids is totally legal content. Right. One of the things that Facebook's own documents say is, you know, we like to think that Facebook is a mirror. Like when you pull people, people say, oh, Facebook's just showing me what, what, what's representative. In reality, Facebook is an amplifier, right? You can take a brand new Instagram account with no friends, no interests, and search for something like healthy eating and just click on the content they give you. You know, follow the hashtag suggested and get taken to anore- pro-anorexia content within two weeks. That kind of thing, an algorithm that pushes kids actively from just an innocuous thing like healthy recipes to pro-anorexia and self-harm content, because both those things are what Facebook found, we need to make sure there's some space in there where we can still make sure that those things get captured. And so I think transparency is a good complement, where it's one of these things where right now we don't know what content they take down or leave up. We should have an ability to see what's going on. And then we can put pressure and democratic accountability on the system. Yeah, because I think one of the concerns is the idea that actually you could have a situation where, in a way, tech companies overly censor Mm -hmm. um, because they're incentivized so as to avoid being in in trouble, take lots of things down. So if you're erring, just err on the side of caution. Do you think... That's part of why... People think that's a bad thing, but I don't know if you think that's a... Part, Part of why I, like, the only thing I've been recommending is around focusing on systems over content. So I'll give you an example. If you divide all the content available on Facebook into content you consented to, so that's things like your friends and family, pages you actually followed, groups you actually joined, versus something like your friend commented on something and now it's inserted in your feed. If you just give people more content they consented to and less that they didn't consent to, for free you get less hate speech, less violence, less less nudity. So rules that say you must take down every piece of X – I worry that you can have effects like what you talk about. If you instead say things like, you need to show me, and this is part of how the Digital Services Act works. It says, you need to tell me what the risks are, and you need to walk me through how you're going to reduce those risks. And you need to give me data that should show me that you're making progress. That's a very different thing than saying every last thing that is X needs to be taken down. Now, two final questions for me. Sure. The first was, we've been talking about Facebook largely, mm-hmm. but I just wondered what you make in terms of, on Twitter at the moment, obviously, Elon Musk is in the process of potentially buying it, but I think there's yet to get to go through it at the time of recording. Mm-hmm. And lots of people are saying, well, that's a threat to online safety. He obviously is saying he's a free, uh, freedom of speech champion. Mm-hmm. From your side, he's also talking about publishing, you know, the algorithm and mm-hmm. all these things. From your side, what do, what do you make of it in terms of that online safety debate? So I'm, I'm, I, I get asked this question multiple times. Yeah, sorry for not being more creative. It's, 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 it's totally okay. I think it's a really important question for us to talk about. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes get a little bit of flack for saying that I'm cautiously optimistic about it, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not alone, right? Like, uh, Jeff, did you see the social dilemma? So the so- social dilemma is the most popular documentary that's ever been on Netflix. It's about the dangers of the algorithms and about social media, the lack of accountability. 
And the director of it, Jeff Orlansky, and I were on a panel together right when Elon announced he was doing this. And uh, we got asked that question, and both of us agreed there's certain opportunities that come with taking a system like that private. So a lot of the stuff that I recommend or like I advocate for, things like saying, should you have to click on a link to reshare it? If you require someone to click on a link, you get 10 or 15% less misinformation. But it's also going to cost you like 0.1% of profit. You know, it's not free. Twitter has decided to do this in the past. Facebook hasn't. It doesn't censor anyone, right? All content is treated equally. But you get much less misinformation. Going private opens up a large tool chest of interventions like that that are about the design of the systems, design of the algorithms. And the fact that he's come, and, and you can do it because you're not having to report your profit every single quarter. Doing those changes, I think, makes your company more long-term successful because it's a more pleasant place to be, but it's, it's going to give you slight losses in the short term. I think the, the reason why I'm, I'm optimistic about this is Elon Musk has shown for years that he's willing to ask hard questions and accept hard answers. Like you, you can't have a rocket blow up and get back on your feet and launch the next one successfully unless you're willing to like really look hard at things. And I think that really sets him apart from Mark like Mark Zuckerberg. The secondary thing is the first two things he said he wanted to do. The first was he said, I want to publish the algorithms. We all deserve to see what's in there. And the second thing he said was, I want to take all the robots off Twitter. So for, for those who aren't aware, there are little programs that pretend to be human beings on Twitter. And they are, and they are on basically every other consumer site as well. And they're literally the most dangerous thing about social media. Because the people who are weaponizing social media, people like Russia, China, Iran, they extensively use these automated humans, these fake humans, to amplify out the messages that are useful to them. And there are lots and lots of tools for taking down these accounts. But when you have a public company, and you'll, if you'll notice, the reason why the deal hasn't gone through yet is Elon said, hey, it looks awfully suspicious that you've said every quarter for a number of years that 5% of your users are bots. I think you don't know how many of your users are real. And, and that's, that's true. And it's because... Every single time you take a robot off Twitter, you have one less user, right? The value of your company went down a little bit. And for those who don't watch the price of tech companies really carefully, if you lose 1% of users, sometimes your stock falls 10%. It can fall 15%. And so there's a real cost to doing the right thing for a public company. But the fact that Elon said, let's take the bots off, shows he's talking to people who know something about what's going on. And the, fi yeah. the final question we yeah. ask everyone is, yeah. what is the worst advice you've ever been given? So the boomers really always said, like, you need to buy a house, you need to buy a house, you need to buy a house. The single worst thing I ever did in my life was I bought a house. And because I bought a house, when I bought a house, so I, I bought it at a very, very wise time economically. Like, I bought it in 2010, like, at the very bottom of the market. But because I renovated a house in my 20s, it meant that when I got hospitalized, I had almost no money. Like I had spent all the savings I had, I had gone from working in tech in my 20s on renovating this house, right? Because I'd bought a foreclosed and a condemned house because it was all I could afford in California. And uh, because of that, I went back to work after I was sick way too soon. Like I went back to work two weeks after I stopped walking with a cane. And it was because I was out of money. And, um, and so now I always tell people, I know you want to buy a house. I know you really want to. I know it feels crazy watching the price of houses get higher and higher and higher. But, like, just don't buy a house before you're 30. Just don't. Just wait. I know you want it. I know you want stabil stability. 
just just build up the war chest higher. And because uh, I, I, I really wish I had had more flexibility during that time period. Thank you, Francis. I love you.